You are listening to Sonic Entanglements. Welcome to Sonic Entanglements, a podcast about sound history in Southeast Asia. My name is Mele Yamomo, and in this series, I will speak with historians, musicologists, media scholars, and sound archivists. Today, I am excited to speak with one of my good friends, a colleague at the University of Amsterdam, and a partner in many projects, Barbara Titus. Barbara, could you please introduce yourself? I'm Barbara Titus, and I'm an Associate Professor of Cultural Musicology here at the University of Amsterdam. And I'm also the curator of what is now sort of colloquially called the Jaap Kunst Collection. So yeah, that's my most important research job here at the moment. Before I interrogate you about your job as the curator of the Jaap Kunst Ethnomusicology Collection, could you perhaps tell us who Jaap Kunst is? Jaap Kunst was actually one of my predecessors here in Amsterdam. He was also um, a lecturer of what he then called ethnomusicology. He is also considered to be one of the founding fathers of the discipline, ethnomusicology. And he coined this term, ethnomusicology, on the basis of his research in the Dutch East Indies between 1919 and 1934. And he was actually one of those early recordists, people who went to often colonized spaces and places to record expressions, musics, sounds that they thought were on the brink of extinction and that they wanted to keep, rather literally, capture the sound. Because of advancing technology in the, in the early 20th century, this was more and more possible, this idea of capturing sound. And for that reason, Jaap Kunst and many of his consociates were also researchers who came in direct contact with the people they were supposed to research and the musics they were supposed to research. So previously people had been sitting predominantly in armchairs and drawing conclusions on the basis of what other people who went far away and came back with all kinds of observations thought that that was there. But now the researcher himself, it was often himself, came in contact with people and recorded what he heard and what he thought would be unique for this, for this group of people. And that's why Jaap Kunst really coined this term ethnomusicology because he said you cannot judge music on the basis of aesthetic preferences or assumptions that are European, but you have to judge this music on the basis of aesthetic preferences and ideas of the people who enjoy and make this music. And that was very new about ethnomusicology in that time. But, you know, he, he recorded lots of stuff from many islands of the what is now the Indonesian archipelago between 1919 and 1934. And also, of course, made really rigorous decisions in what was worth recording and what was not. So the collection of his recordings gives a very clear insight into how this colonial oral gaze, I would almost say, developed. How people from imperial powers regarded those who were colonized. And often in these assumptions, there were also ideas about cultures of people being timeless, unchangeable, and Japkuns had much trouble accommodating changes in what he heard in the music. He didn't like that very much because he thought people should just play the music 
that they had always played, <laughs> as if there was no change in the past. Mm-hmm. So yeah, the whole sort of development of the discipline that I'm also still working in and the problems, the political implications of such hearing as well are very much present in this collection. If I remember correctly, Jaap Kunst died in 1960. So there is a generation between him and your tenure as the curator of his archive. What happened in between? After Jaap Kunst's untimely death in 1960, he died of throat cancer in 1960. His widow was so poor that she had to sell the collection to the university in order to make ends meet. And it's very important to note that she was very seminal in the building of this collection. And everything was sort of put in Jaap Kunst's name, but they basically did it together. But then when he died, she was without any money, without any income, so she had to sell it. In the 1960s, this collection came under the wing of Ernst Heinz, who was the successor of Jaap Kunst here. And he founded the Ethnomusicologisch Centrum Jaap Kunst, Ethnomusicological Center Jaap Kunst, and really made it a living archive. So he added lots of his own field material, lots of his own recordings, but also those of his colleagues, of his students from many, many parts of the world. So the collection grew and grew with lots of other information carriers, uh, tapes, real tapes in all kinds of formats. Cassettes. Ernst Heinz was an avid filmer. He made lots of videos. So the collection up to the 2000s kept growing until also there was a generation of scholars who increasingly saw the problematic sides of just going somewhere to record and collect and assemble it. So after that really became less and less. And the collection also became spread over various locations at the university. Which means the collection was dispersed in the different institutes and departments of the university? Yeah, which was really very much against not only the wish, but also the contract Jaap Kunst's widow, Kati Kunst van Weli, her name was, had made with the university because she was prepared to sell the collection on the condition that it would stay together, which it didn't. So the sound samples are still in Berlin. We found this out recently, that the wax rolls that he made in the Dutch East Indies directly to Berlin because they could be processed there. But we found out recently that he actually paid for them being processed there. So they remained his property. But the originals, as far as I, I know, are still still there. In the Berlin Phonogram Archive. Yeah. And then the written archive went to the university library and became centralized. And it's now kept quite well in what is called bijzondere collections, special collections, where they keep rare manuscripts and stuff. But one of the other unfortunate things that happened is that, for instance, Japkun's book collection was spread over the entire UVA library collection mm-hmm. without any notification in the catalog that it was part of the Japkun's collection. So it basically got lost in the large collection. And then all kinds of other sound material from the Ethnomusicologisch Centrum Japkunst is still in the musicology building. But this is also quite recent because much of the tape were in a depot in Amsterdam Zuid-Oost, really kilometers away from here. And we managed to get them back. I also did that with your help. Last summer. Last really? summer. Yeah. We went there too. And I gave a course on sound archiving. And I basically sent the students there to put things in order. So there were lots of hands involved to get this done. Lots of <laughs> brains as well right. to find a system to get this back together. So it's physically back together now. So why did it end up in different places? Is there a reason for that? Not one reason. I think the reason was very mundane and very banal in a sense that 
the university increasingly became a centralized institution over the past decades. And somebody like Ernst Heinz has always resisted that, and often with good reason. But if institutions centralize, it means that they also become more possessive about what needs to be where. Also because Ernst Heinz uh, resisted that, he consciously kept things behind because he didn't want them to vanish in the big collection like like it happened with so many other things, for instance, the books. So some of the stuff is still in my room, is still in this building, the musicology building, University Theatre. Most of the stuff is now in Bijzondere Collecties. But it just got spread, I think, through bureaucratic reasons. Let's get down to the collection. So what's in it? Yes, the collection has a wild, I would say, variety of materials and information carriers. Of course, it's a sound collection, so there are recordings on various sound carriers, really ranging from wax rolls to uh, 78 rounds to LPs to dots, recordings to cassettes to CDs. There's lots of photographic material. Uh, There's lots of silent movie and movie with sound material. There is correspondence between Jaap Kunst and several, yeah, what were then called informants who were really crucial in the shaping and acquisition of knowledge that became part of this collection. There is um, field notes with sort of the kind of questions that Jaap Kunst, but also his successor Ernst Heinz, asked to the people they worked with and how they experimented with finding out the right questions for the answers they actually wanted to hear. That is also very interesting to see. So you see the process of doing fieldwork, doing research. There's teaching material, because Japkens was appointed at the UvA since 1942. All that material, all these information carriers say something about each other also. So it's really impossible to see the sound recordings on themselves, because there are also photographs that picture the circumstances in which the sound recordings were made and, and tell us so much more about everything. What are the challenges of putting together all these dispersed materials back into one collection? This is one of the most difficult things I find in managing the collection now because at the moment the collection is not very well accessible because we are in the process of digitizing lots of sound material, but most of it is not digitized, uh, also not the written and and the image material. And the most difficult part I find to connect the objects that are there and that are now only since last summer in one building or one or two buildings very close to each other to connect the objects on the one hand with the descriptions on the very extensive card systems on the other. This is really a challenge because various systems were used over the the years and decades. The cataloging system is at times very detailed and very thorough, but sometimes it also overlaps with different sound carriers. So you will have the same number for a 78 round disc as you have for a reel tape, and they will be two different recordings, but then the number will be the same because somebody made the same sort of combination of numbers and letters for different sound carriers. So there are all kinds of problems there. And that's also because people sometimes popped by in Jaap Kunst's office or Ernst Heinz's office and said, I've got some stuff here, do you want this? And then it was a nice addition, but you know, sometimes there were overlaps in, in numbering and sometimes there are different systems used for the same objects. So you actually have to see why these systems were used and how they worked and what they actually indicate, which is also a challenge. Who benefits from these collections? Who uses them? 
Actually, not many people at the moment. And this is because the collection is not accessible in a way. What we intend to do is to digitize it and make it available online to a certain extent, as far as that is ethically responsible and juridically possible. But at the moment, it's difficult for people to access the collection because they have to come here physically. And for many people in the world, that's quite a challenge. And then they have to work their way through the card system, which is possible. I mean, it's not a complete chaos, but they have to know what they're looking for. And there's so much material that is there and that we actually don't know is there anymore. So this is one of the challenges I see and one of the things I really want to change, that there is some way in which we have an idea of what is there and make sure that those who are engaging with that kind of material say the material from a specific island in the Indonesian archipelago. I mean, this is reasonably easy. I mean, we know where Japkun's recorded. We know where Ernst Heinz recorded. So it's pretty easy to find it out where a recording comes from and when it was made, because it's pretty well documented. But for instance, if there are people who are interested specifically in Catholic ritual music in Flores, it becomes a little bit more difficult already, because then you have to sort of find specific titles and specific areas. It's all possible, but you have to know very well what you're looking for. Mm-hmm. And if there's a way of searching all this material more easily, that is something we're now trying to do or what we want to do in the coming years. So once the collection has been consolidated and digitized, who do you imagine will be its future beneficiaries? I'm not quite sure about that. I mean, I think primarily the people who enjoy make and made the music. And you know what the problem is? I mean, the problem of the collectors up to now is that they're saying, oh, it's for everybody. It doesn't matter for whom. But then, of course, there are different opportunities for people to access this material because of the place where it is. It's now in the Netherlands. It's Indonesian music, but it's all lying in Amsterdam and maybe somewhat in Berlin. And that's why I find it really important to work together with Indonesian colleagues on this project. Since I'm often there in Indonesia and spent part of my childhood there, I know people there and researchers also. Musicians, historians, musicologists, field workers who work there nowadays. I find it really important to work with them on disclosing this collection, to make together decisions about to whom it should be disclosed, especially because I have no articulate answer for that. One of the things that my Indonesian friends and colleagues are planning to do, this is a plan by Jitra Aryandari from Institutes in Indonesia, the High School of the Arts, and Kursi Uliadi, also from the High School of the Arts, to travel with the material of Jaapkunst back to Indonesia, to the community where the music was recorded in, for instance, the islands of Nias, Flores, a region in Sulawesi, Dongala and Papua, and to see whether people still know that music or whether they know family members who play that music because this is also so striking of the material, uh, specifically by Jaapkunst, that he recorded samples of a culture. So the people who sing and play this are often anonymous. They are not acknowledged. They are not credited as individuals because they perform as samples or representatives of their community, of their ethnos from the ethnomusicology. Kunst was interested in these communities as well-articulated separate cultural entities that in his mind were or should be unchangeable and timeless. Of course they were not. But in this ideology of recording and assembling and knowing and controlling communities that were often colonized, individuals became anonymous, became samples. One thing that I think is very important to do is to figure out who were these people. 
Are there children and grandchildren maybe still there? Are there people who remember them playing or singing something or remembering certain songs? Why were these songs sung? Often that is not mentioned, especially not in Kunstmaterial. I mean, later field workers like Ernst Heinz were more sensitive to this, mostly credited to musicians and made sure their names were known. But especially with the Abkunst material, there's so much work to be done to figure out who the people were who made and enjoyed the music. And so I think the idea of Chitrayandari and Kusuliadi is a great idea to go back there and bring the samples in dialogue with those who live there now. You mentioned earlier how ethnomusicological archives deal with or might encounter ethical and judicial issues. Can you explain this? Yeah, one of the things that uh, occurred to me when I was delving into this project was, of course, that I need money to do this. I need hands, I need people, but I need money to do this. And I want to do it together. I want to make a team. And of course, many people are willing to be part of this team. And uh, some of my colleagues in Indonesia, uh, notably Srima Gono, who's a colonial historian at the Universitas Gajahmada in Yogyakarta, he has good contacts with the Indonesian government and the Indonesian Ministry of Culture and Education. Uh, he managed to introduce us also to high civil servants up there in the ministry and when I was presenting part of the collection there I got the feeling and I'm not sure whether this is true but it was my feeling that the collection was interesting for the ministry also for a political agenda of showing the various Indonesian islands as a nation state as one nation state so of course uh, Indonesia is a wildly diverse country with islands and cultures and languages that vary greatly. And there are many people on many islands who say we don't want to be part of Indonesia at all. Uh, we are only part of Indonesia because that's what the Dutch left behind as a kind of Dutch colonial empire. We have our own culture and our own interests and we don't want to be exploited for centralized interests. So the sort of political situation in Indonesia, especially after 1998 when the dictatorship was put aside, is quite urgent and one of the very big political agendas of the nation state is to keep this nation state together. And I felt that the Japkun's collection, that is one collection of many islands of Indonesia, also those islands that now say maybe we don't want to be part of Indonesia, served this nationalist aim. And I, as a curator, was not sure whether I was in support of that nationalist aim, because I also support many of the grievances that, for instance, Papua people have against Indonesian rule, and people from Aceh have from Indonesian rule. So that was difficult to find a position in that. So I, I, I might want to collaborate with the ministry, I want to collaborate with the government, Indonesian government, but on what grounds? And who decides about it? Am I the one who decides about this as the former colonizer? Maybe not, you know, maybe the ministry is right and says, okay, if you want to give the music back to the people, give it to us and then we'll decide what happens with it because we're now an independent nation state. We're no longer a Dutch colony. Fair enough. So there are many dimensions to this. This is very interesting. When you first mentioned ethical and judiciary issues earlier, I was mostly thinking about issues of copyright and I realized how this notion of right, copyright, is a very Western concept. Yeah. The notion of ownership is probably much more complex in the cultures and society from which this music comes from. Yeah. We have spoken about the ethical issues and the challenges of managing the Yapkunst archive. But I also want to ask, what gives you pleasure? Yeah. What do you enjoy in your job? What I very much enjoy in this project is that it brings me in touch 
with part of my life that I had actually forgotten. I spent part of my childhood in Indonesia and this collection actually gave me personally the possibility to go back there and to work there and, and work with people I want to work with. So that's a personal reason for me why I like this very much, but there's also a broader reason of being able to collaborate with people now and think about issues of what, we, what we're doing with such sound recordings now and how we can look at our pasts also. So it also brings me in contact with my own ancestors as people who live there. And my grandfather had a milk farm near Surabaya and my father was born there and grew up there. So many generations of my family have lived there and settled there and also in colonial circumstances. So my family had a position there in that constellation of power that I also need to deal with. And that is part of how I approach that research. So it brings me back on a personal level to my own family history. It gives me the opportunity to explore my own experiences in Indonesia on a personal level. And then on an academic level, this helps me and also my personal history helps me to think, for instance, about the Dutch colonial past in Indonesia and what the sonic dimensions are of such colonial pasts. How we hear inequalities of power between recordists and those who were recorded, for instance. How, as I said earlier, these selections of what was worth keeping and what was not worth keeping were made by those from the colonial administration. But also, and this is something that we also encountered in our workshop a couple of weeks ago, the close intersection of various people in colonial times, not only as a simplistic binary between the colonizers and the colonized, but the way in which there were all kinds of layers in society through which these relations were maintained and which had very different implications for different people. So I also find it difficult to make unequivocal value judgments about whether certain decisions were good or bad. They were good for some people and disastrous for others on various levels. If you already think about education, for instance, that's great and that everybody could could go to school but it also resulted in the fact that indigenous forms of knowledge were suppressed or eliminated these are all the dimensions are there also in the sound recordings and in the written records also the written archive that's part of the Yapkins archive the correspondence he had with so many people from the Javanese and Balinese nobility who had a very interesting position in the colonial constellation of things. The ways in which the knowledge that Japkins built about music was dependent on knowledge of those Javanese, Sundanese, Balinese, Sumatran colleagues he worked with. And they were colleagues, but they were also subordinates for him in that time. And, you know, some sometimes complexly not subordinates. I mean, the Javanese nobility was the Javanese nobility. That was not really a subordinate, but in a way part of the system. Yeah, how these forms of knowledge were constructed, I think that's a fascinating thing to look at. It's something that interests me very much. I think it's very necessary to look at the Dutch colonial past and to look at it from a sonic oral perspective is, is important. Barbara. Thank you very much for taking the time to share with us your invaluable experience and knowledge as the curator of the Yapkins Ethnomusicology Collection. Thank you for asking me to elaborate on something that I'm also still sort of trying to get into. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Sonic Entanglements podcast. I am your host and producer, Mile Yamomo. Thijs van der Geest is our sound engineer and sound editor. And Jean Bersena is our publicity manager. Our theme music is created by Marcus Hogerfors. The 
This podcast is funded by the Dutch Research Organization. If you would like to listen to other episodes of this program, subscribe to Sonic Entanglements at Podbean, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Pocket Casts. If you enjoyed this episode and would like to learn more, you can head over to sonic-entanglements.com.